Hello, my name is Father Edward Looney, and you're listening to the podcast, How They Love Mary, a podcast that I hope will either be the beginning or the deepening of your Marian devotion. There are lots of spiritual writers out there, and some books of spiritual writers become classics in our Catholic tradition. You could say that for The Imitation of Christ, for example, or The Story of a Soul. But maybe one classic author that isn't on everybody's radar would be Blessed Columba Marmion. I was introduced to his writings while I was in the seminary and even had the opportunity to pray at his grave while I visited Maridsu Abbey in Belgium back in 2014. And I included him in my book, How They Love Mary, 28 Life-Changing Lessons of Devotion to Our Lady. He is Lesson 15. And today I'm very happy to be speaking with someone who has read a lot of Marmion, who has researched and written on Marmion as well. And his name is Father Cashin Kenneman. And he is a monk of St. Louis Abbey down in St. Louis, Missouri. And he is a monk, a priest, and the prior of the abbey. He also teaches on friendship with God and the theology of marriage at St. Louis Priory School. And he's taken time out of his very busy day as prior and teacher uh, to speak with me today. So thanks so much for joining me, Father Cashin. Oh, Father Edward, thank you for having me. It's wonderful to talk about Marmion. And I'd love to learn more about his spirituality with Mary, too. For me, uh, I was... I came up through the Benedictine tradition in seminary uh, through Conception Abbey, and just a few episodes ago, I spoke with Father Pacomius Mead about uh, about Father Lucas Etlin, who is a monk of Conception Abbey, and I've spoken to other monks, and I know there's an Advent episode that I've already recorded that uh, will be released in November with an abbot of a monastery here in the United States. So... Uh, I know a lot about Benedictine life and that there's different confederations like the Swiss Confederation and then there's another one and there's English Benedictines as well. There's an English Benedictine monastery out in Washington, D.C., St. Anselm's, I think is what it's called. And then there's your monastery that's also English Benedictine. Kind of a little bit of a different habit look, if I'm not mistaken. (laughs) But tell me a little bit about English Benedictines and how you're all part of the Benedictine family but yet there's different kind of expressions, or I don't know what the right word would be, but share a little bit about your abbey. Sure. So the Benedictine order uh, is, in fact, just one aspect of the broader Benedictine family, you know, that can include Cistercians and Trappists, and etc. Um, but in the Benedictine order, we've been around for 1,500 years, uh, slowly the monasteries kind of spread over various um, parts of territory, especially in Europe, and eventually um, that that made it to England, and our congregation sees it start as St. Gregory the Great sending monks um, from the Chalian Hill. Um, before Gregory the Great had been named um, Pope, he had actually been a monk there uh, at the Chalian Hill, and some of the Benedictines had fled uh, from from um, oncoming hordes down to that same monastery. So they knew of the rule of St. Benedict, and uh, they sent those monks to go convert England. And uh, they did successfully get a foothold in England and spread rather well in the early centuries to the point that England became a very Benedictine uh, country in, in, in those years and the years following it. And eventually, later in, in history, 
the Holy See asks the Benedictines to organize themselves a little bit more, uh, because generally, by law, every monastery is its own little religious order, um, but they wanted some kind of coordinating work to happen, so they coordinated us by nations, and we were the English Benedictines, and then since we're Americans, um, you know, we're a nation of immigrants, so we had various different types of uh, these congregations enter the United States, and so we have a variety of Benedictine congregations in the United States. In short, you know, I have two sister houses. The one you mentioned, St. Anne's Subs in Washington, D.C., and the other one is in Portsmouth, Rhode Island, and those are English Benedictine. And then there's the broader Benedictine uh, congregations um, of Swiss American, American Cassinese. Uh, there are a whole number of different um, congregations present in the United States, and those are kind of our cousins. I see. So, yeah, and a monastery, of course, um, gathers the monks every day for prayer five times at least a day. They celebrate Mass. And for you, your monastery has a school. So does Marmion Abbey down in uh, Illinois. So does Conception Abbey as they have a seminary. And so education has been something that has become associated with Benedictines and forming uh, especially young men and such, but others as well, uh, just to be good Christian holy people, whether it's in a seminary context or just in a high school context. And that goes all the way back to St. Benedict. He didn't form us as a as a teaching kind of charism, but he did have rules that pertain to the young students who were there in the monastery. So uh, we know that even from the start, there were students around. Uh, and yeah, we're very happy to carry on that, that tradition here. Uh, it's a strong tradition in our congregation to teach, uh, especially at the secondary level. Uh, we also have a parish here on campus. We're in uh, suburban St. Louis, Missouri, and uh, yeah. Now, as a Benedictine, there are lots of different Benedictine writers out there. Uh, you mentioned like St. Gregory the Great, for example, and uh, you could think of others. In fact, I have some sort of Benedictine reader that I acquired from Liturgical Press a few years ago, kind of just tracing all of these different individuals uh, for, for many, many centuries. And I guess quite naturally then, a Benedictine might choose to read another Benedictine writer, and it seems that you chose Blessed Columba Marmion. So who is Columba Marmion? Uh, great question. So he lived from 1856 until 1923. He uh, is an, was an Irishman, um, but had a French mother. And he goes off and studies in Rome for the priesthood. He becomes a diocesan priest um, and, and teaches in the seminary for a while. He teaches dogma for a while. And then he gets a call on his heart to become a Benedictine. And eventually he chooses to enter a monastery in Belgium, a um, monastery by the name of Merit Sue. And um, that's where the portion of his mother being French helps him out. And he... Um, kind of takes root there, and they have a little school as well. And um, he taught in the school for a few years, and then he found that he was too indulgent. So he was he was not the best schoolmaster, um, but he ended up um, working in administration in the monastery, becoming the abbot, and uh, had some amazing books that are still in print till today. Um, so that's that's what he's really known for is his spirituality. And some of those books he wrote for people in a particular life. So there's 
Christ and the monk. There's Christ and the priest. Then he kind of writes for the lay people in Christ uh, Christ and our life, or maybe you'll correct me there. Right. And then there's Christ and his mysteries, which kind of revolves around the liturgical schedule. So lots of different writings that someone could really delve deep into uh, this contribution of Blessed Columba Marmion. So what kind of is his general contribution, I guess, with all of these works that he wrote? Well, um, generally, some people consider his biggest contribution is in promoting the concept of divine adoption. And I do think that that's a, a major contribution of his. Uh, and you can certainly see that as a recurring theme in his writings. Um, and I happen to explore kind of a subset of that, uh, which is kind of how to develop in the spiritual life and kind of looking at his spiritual playbook, so to speak, for spiritual direction, um, which takes that foundation of divine adoption as its key principle and then um, kind of goes into a more um, applicable and tangible route from there. And that's where your book comes in, The Grace of Nothingness, Navigating the Spiritual Life with Blessed Columba Marmion. So the grace of nothingness. Now, we know of lots of different graces. For example, we know that Mary was full of grace. And then we, uh, in the Catholic world, we have the sacramental graces that come with every celebration and reception of the sacrament that strengthen us in our Christian life. We have actual grace. We have sanctifying grace. There's lots of grace. And even in one of the Marian apparitions of uh, the Miraculous Medal, Our Lady says that one hand is with the rays emanating are the asked for graces. The other hand are the unasked for graces that people don't think of asking God for. So, so you're talking about a particular grace here of nothingness. Now we can pray for certain graces in our life. I can pray for the grace to be faithful or humble or whatever the case might be. So what is meant here by nothingness and why is that a grace? I like how you phrase that, too. I, I want to just back up and give you my super simple, non-technical definition of grace, which is um, the power of God at work in a person, you know, like rather than dice it up into a whole bunch of different things, just just appreciating it on that level of God wanting to to kind of heal and transform and perfect each person. Um, so that that's the grace uh, and then the question is just how to grow in that. And and I think he was great about how a humble confidence in God is a key uh, towards those the kind of dual dispositions are key to really allowing that, that grace into one's life to transform oneself as much as possible. Um, so it's not, it's not certainly not praying to be nothing uh, on like an existential level or uh, even in the not admitting your talents and all your gifts level, um, but it's more of how to flourish by uh, having that humble confidence in God so that your gifts can be used for his glory in the, the best way possible. And here you write in chapter two about, you know, the grace of nothingness as an aid to humility in relationship to God ourselves, so me as a person, and then to other people. So that's very nice, you know, to always think about God first, and then yourself, and then others, or sometimes we put others before ourselves. So, uh, and in the Benedictine tradition, especially uh, through the Cistercian, St. Bernard of Clairvaux, 
we get a lot about humility. And he writes, you know, um, a treatise on the 12 steps of pride and humility. St. Benedict, in his rule, writes about humility and different steps and such about humility. So that's something that's very much a, a part of monastic life. And I guess it's humility that brings about this grace of nothingness. That's true. So it's true. It goes all the way back to St. Benedict because uh, really the only truly uh, chapter of spirituality uh, as uh, as an entire chapter in the whole rule of St. Benedict is chapter 7 on humility. There are wonderful insights of spirituality throughout the, the whole work, especially in the preface and the tools for good works. Um, but his real work of spirituality uh, had to do with how we ascend to God by by allowing humility to kind of flourish more and more in our life, a proper humility. Uh, and then the the thing you reference is that we get we can get confused sometimes about that with regard to God and with regard to others and with regard to ourselves. Uh, and so just trying to think through the topic so that we do it in a way that's going to build us up and, and help us to thrive by God's grace. And this idea of nothingness, which works does Marmion bring it out in in his writings? Uh, well, the, it's a it's a theme in in all of his works. I mean, it's 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 really ubiquitous in his works. Um, you can find it, you know, throughout Christ the Life of the Soul, which I think is the great introductory book to his spirituality. That's the one that's written for a lay audience, and it's a, a little bit more popular in its writing style. Um, and you can see him talking about humility. Uh, in, in that, and how I think he's talking about how we receive from God as best as possible what He wants to give, uh, and how we uh, then then allow that to happen by kind of getting over our own egos a little bit from time to time. Uh, I want to explain that a little bit more. I, I think. He's really good in the kind of history of spirituality of following St. Therese of Lisieux. Interestingly enough, the Pope of the time sought Marmion's opinion about whether Therese should be beatified. Um, so what a beautiful kind of link there is there. And so we have his letter back saying, yes, I think you really should beatify this, this young French nun. Um, I think that he had a great dogmatic mind who, who gave that mind to spirituality. He had her wonderful insights. And the insight I'm going to call upon here is she said to come to God with empty hands, but hoping for them to be filled, right? And I think the core problem he's trying to talk about is we too often come to God trying to give God something, you know, uh, and, and we're so you know focused on giving him a gift that we sometimes aren't so focused on receiving what he's trying to give. Uh, and so that's that's this notion of, of kind of discerning how he's wanting to work in our lives and he wants to give us what he wants to give us in, his in our lives. There's one of these common prefaces at Mass, and we might not hear them all that often because they're not used on Sunday. They're only used for daily Masses, and then we have the saints during the year. So uh, it's very 
not often that we uh, use these common prefaces, but it has a line there that, you know, he has no need of our praise, but our desire is itself a gift to him. But he has no need of our praise. And so kind of what you're saying there is that we should be ready to receive what God offers. So, and that's kind of the next thing you do in your book, The Grace of Nothingness, is that you want people to take what Marmion teaches and to apply it to their life. And so they're going to put into action something so that they might grow in that friendship with God. And um, I, I think a lot of times we all just think prayer is, you know, I say these prayers that have been written, for example, and uh, maybe I use a prayer book. They're scripted prayers. I, I just pray traditional prayers. But yet there's something about that, as you just mentioned, coming to God with empty hands waiting to receive. And so uh, I, I suppose then that silence would be a key factor then in that type of a prayer. But how can we cultivate this in our own spiritual life? Uh, yeah, I, I like that notion of silence. I, I want to you know, ground that silence, I think, in, in St. Paul, what do you have that you have not received, you know? And, and that, that can admit, like, if we think of the theology of grace, so if we add in a little bit more of the theology of the grace, it's that, that we can have real merits in our life, right? We can say, like, God has, um, you know, gotten me out of some some troublesome parts of my life and, and kind of given me some stable, somewhat stable virtue, hopefully, in, in, in some of those areas. Uh, I, I, I'd be able to go into a job interview and say, you know, I, I think that I, I've successfully so far taught eighth graders, you know, and I can get better at that. But, um, you know, there are real merits in our lives and we need to acknowledge those, but also acknowledge them as gifts. Um, and so it's that. What, you, what do you have that you have not received? And starting to just broaden that perspective of what we have received um, and not necessarily being presumptuous uh, or kind of built up by what we have received, uh, but really then the, the the prayer part of it, to get to your point, is kind of, well, what do you want to do next, you know? And, and there there is a sense of, rather than telling him what he will do next, is, is sitting there quietly and saying, but what do you want to do next? We've talked a little bit about some of those writings of Blessed Columba Marmion, and two themes we've addressed are divine adoption, as you mentioned, and this grace of nothingness. Are there any other major themes that emerge in the writing of Marmion that are valuable to us? Well, I wouldn't really quickly say that, you know, humility, even good humility, is not fully complete until you use that um, as uh, I'm going to steal a term from Father Paul Murray, as a springboard towards confidence in, in God. And, and I think there's this notion of the deeper we can get in our humility, the more intense our confidence can be that there's a good God who has a fullness ready for me, who's leading me towards a path towards my full thriving, if I but let him um, and, and it's it's deepening in that confidence uh, has to go hand in hand uh, with the humility so that uh, it's opening us up to becoming um, a new creation in a new way. So Marmion writes a little bit about the Blessed Mother. That's how I was able to include a chapter in How They Love Mary, 28 Life-Changing Stories of 
devotion to Mary. And uh, I think that he has some brilliant insight here. And he says, or I'll just read this paragraph. Marmion's approach to Marian devotion was balanced. It's easy for us to be overwhelmed by the sheer variety of devotions approved by the church. As you've no doubt realized by now, one cannot perform them all. But as Marmion assures us, that's okay. Quote, it is not necessary to weigh oneself down with practices. One should choose some, but stay faithful to what has been chosen once the choice has been made. Such daily homage given to his mother will be one that could not be more pleasing to our Lord. So there's lots of different devotions to Our Lady. We have the rosary, we have chaplets and novenas and little offices, and, you know, the list can go on. And, you know, we have been talking a little bit about humility, and I think it's almost to say I have to be humble enough to acknowledge that I can only give just a little, but what I give is enough. And, and so even in terms of that Marian devotion, he talks a, a little bit about the rosary in, in some of his writings as well. And uh, I broke that down as well. But I just think that's the encouragement. I think we can often get discouraged by, I'm not doing enough. But I think that we have to understand that what we're doing is pleasing to God and to Our Lady. Oh, I love that. And I also love the, the word that you used right there was discouragement, right? And, and that would be the the actual thing we're trying to overcome. Um, and there's so many different ways we can fall to that discouragement. And I guess on this advice of, of this humble confidence, you know, if we think of the purifications of the like dark night of the souls and dark night of the spirit, those can be bewildering and confusing and lead to discouragement. Um, and and it's there that we kind of need to just persevere in this sense that I am a divinely adopted son or daughter of God. Uh, he's going to see me through this. And sometimes it's that suffering that can really confuse people. Um, and, and I have a Marian quote um, from Christ in his mysteries, uh, chapter 9, section 3. Uh, and he says of Mary, the Virgin Mary certainly had no need of such trials of the purifications of, of these dark nights. What branch was more fruitful ever? Seeing it was she who gave divine fruit to the world. But when she lost Jesus, she knew those sharp sufferings that were to increase both her capacity to love and the extent of her merits. We cannot easily estimate the greatness of the suffering she underwent. To understand it, we have to comprehend what Jesus was to his mother. But this notion of, like, she didn't need any of that purification, and yet there was still an offering that was requested of her, a significant offering that was requested of her. And, and we can draw from her strength, right, when we feel like we're at the foot of the cross. We can be there with her uh, and kind of lean upon her at the foot of the cross, Um whether we're there because of our own sins or because of other sins or because of just circumstances. And I think that was a beautiful part of his Marian spirituality as well. Admittedly, I didn't have Christ and his mysteries available to me when I was writing. So, you know, maybe my chapter is even a bit insufficient in that sense uh, because I didn't have recourse to that. I only had um, his other writings uh, available to me. But, uh, the back of your book, of course, every back of the book has a little description, and this is a very curious line, and 
It says, Father Cashin seeks to rekindle that fire for a new generation with his inspired presentation of Marmion's key spiritual insights. So I don't think Marmion has been so readily received by people today. Like, I think he's probably an unknown spiritual figure. So how can you or how can we uh, ignite kind of this Marmion has something to offer us, just like Father Eusebius Martis, or at the time when I knew him, Father Douglas Martis, my professor, who said, I want to introduce you to Columba Marmion. You need to read this book. So uh, how can we rekindle that fire um, for for Columba Marmion and his writings? Well, I, I'm, I'm encouraged by the fact that all of his books are still in print, a hundred years after his uh, his death, we're coming up on the centenary next year. Um, so, someone out there is still reading them. I find that young seminarians like him a lot and and know of him. So um, that's another encouraging sign. People who kind of want to return to something that's um, safe and solid. You know, he he's definitely as safe and solid as it gets on the spiritual life. He draws from all the great traditions. He's he's widely read in the spiritual life, and he's able to tie it together in beautiful packages. His turns of phrases are fantastic. Um, but I, I another avenue I would use to try to encourage people to read this guy from 100 years ago is he was very, very influential on Mother Teresa. You know, so someone we can, at least someone of my generation, can more easily see uh, as a as a person of holiness we would love to emulate um he was he was influential on her uh, and, and i think the more you start to ask the older generations in monasteries and, and even older generations of priests they'll they'll actually if you mention the word marmion they'll say oh yes we were all trained on marmion when we were young like we all know his works sure. um so there is there is that I guess Mother Teresa. What I try to do in the book is show the thread from Saint Therese and from before, uh, but especially from Saint Therese to Marmion, and then from Marmion to Mother Teresa in a sense, oh, uh, because wow. she she wrote, she wrote a lot about this um, this notion of nothingness in her personal writings, and she 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 talks about Marmion in this topic too. Um, so. Um, that's, I don't know, I could, that's, she's one of the leading lights of the 20th century, and she found him to be helpful. And I think that's one of the interesting things about the Benedictine order, for example, or the Benedictine family. Going back again to St. Bernard of Clairvaux, who I've written quite a bit on and was the subject of my research. So St. Bernard was an advisor to rulers, an advisor to popes, and all these people sought his counsel. And when you said earlier that, you know, the Holy Father asked Columba Marmion, of all people, well, should Therese of Lisieux be beatified? And, uh, you know, they went through the whole process, but it was kind of getting a sense of what others uh, thought. And so the influence of him, and then to trace that, as you mentioned, then, well, you ask, well, who did he influence elsewise? And so you have mm -hmm. Mother Teresa, and surely that there are countless others and uh, sometimes you pick that up in spiritual reading that you can see like, oh, this person must have been a disciple of this person because their thought comes through in that manner. So, uh, you know, one of my goals actually uh, when I wrote this book, How They Love Mary, was to introduce people to some unknown figures to them. So I have some of the popular 
saints, for example, but then there are unknown people like Columba Marmion or Father Emile Nubert, another writer who has great wealth of spiritual classics, in my opinion, or Mother Mary Francis, and the list goes on. But that's one thing I wanted to do, was to bring forward uh, some some of these unknown individuals so that we might grow in appreciation of them. Now, maybe just my last question for you, since you've dedicated a whole book to the theology of Columba Marmion, I'm assuming this was the subject of your license thesis or something along those lines, some of your research. But as a monk, did you read Christ and the monk? And then what drew you to actually write about Marmion? Oh, interesting. Yeah. So uh, I, I resisted. Well, first of all, they didn't teach him to me in, in my formation. Um, and then I was doing a, a, a license in spiritual theology and I uh, was reading the greats on the spiritual life, and I wanted to incorporate them in some way. And I love St. Therese. And uh, Cardinal Burke kept mentioning that the way I was speaking about the spiritual life reminded him a lot of Blessed Columba Marmion, um, because, you know, he was in Rome and I was in Rome. And we would, were both St. Louisans in a sense. And um, so we were, you know, occasionally coming across each other's path. And he kept encouraging me to to read something in a Marmion. And eventually he was kind enough to buy me a copy of Christ, the Ideal of the Monk. Um, and I still didn't read it for a while, I must admit. I kind of was thinking I didn't want to do anyone in the 20th century. Um, but, but by the time I finally got around to it, I realized he was doing much the same I was trying to do. He was creating a synthesis of the best of what's out there. Um, and and applying it to today, and and it was doing it very successfully. And he was relying on all the greats of the spirit, Catholic spiritual traditions, uh, as and strongly in a Benedictine kind of interpretation of things. Um, so I was very blessed to have that. I think kind of providential intervention in my research. Yeah, just to uh, hear that, you know, you said the full title. I've just been kind of uh, trying to hope that I. Got it right, but it's Christ, ideal of the monk, Christ, ideal of the priest. And just that idea that Christ is the ideal of any person's vocation. So for the monk or for the priest specifically, for the lay person, uh, you know, just to allow Christ to be that ideal that we strive to imitate in our own lives. And that's something I think even just by the very title of his works uh, brings forward to us uh, for consideration and meditation. Yeah, I mean that's that's wonderful, and that's he's so good about that, and it's very he's highly Christocentric in his spirituality. That's a an attribute of the French school of spirituality that he he's very much a part of. Um, and and just in case people don't know, I mean that French school of spirituality has come to influence the whole church uh, in the last you know century. So so that's something that's become mainstream. But at the time, it was a it was a and kind of a re-articulation of things in a Christocentric lens. Well, today I've been speaking with Father Cashin Kenneman, who is the prior of St. Louis Abbey, who wrote this book, The Grace of Nothingness, Navigating the Spiritual Life with Blessed Columba Marmion. So you've really given us a crash course into Marmion, probably an introduction uh, for many people into his life. 
And your book is available from Angelico Press. They can buy it directly from Angelico Press or wherever Catholic books are bought and sold. And uh, I hope people learn more about this spiritual giant, uh, really, of our times and the contributions he has made and the influence that he can still have on people today. So, Father, if people want to learn more about St. Louis Abbey, uh, how can they do that? Uh, well, there is, I think it's stlewisabbey.org. Um, if you go on YouTube, you can search for St. Louis Abbey. And if you happen to go to the playlist, I've got seven videos, which are a uh, school of prayer, which include insights from Blessed Coloma Marmion as a kind of introductory course on spiritual theology. So um, those are various ways to find us. All right. Well, that's great. I'll be sure to put that YouTube uh, link, especially in the show notes, because maybe this has whet the appetite of some people and they'll want to learn more about the spiritual life through the eyes of Columba Marmion. Well, thanks so much, Father Cashin, for taking time out of your day and for joining me today. Thank you, Father Edward, for having me. It was wonderful. Hey, thanks so much for listening to today's show and for all the many ways that you support the podcast. If you want to help out the podcast, be sure to check out Sock Religious. I love their socks. I love their shirts. And so go over to Sock Religious, use the link in the show notes, and buy some holy socks or some holy shirts that you can wear to evangelize your family and your friends. If you also want to support the podcast, I invite you to please share the podcast with your friends or on your social media platforms. Rate or review the podcast on Apple Podcasts. And if you don't mind, please follow me on social media, on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. My handle is at FR Edward Looney. You'll see all of the posts, all of the content that I put out each week by following me there. Thanks so much again for listening today. Know that I am entrusting you to the heart of Mary, asking her to pray for you this day and every day. And if you don't mind, say a prayer for me too. Let us remain united in prayer to Jesus through Mary. God bless.